a Podcast One production. G'day, Adam Spencer here with another edition of The Big Questions. I emceed the Singularity U event in Sydney. If you haven't heard of Singularity U, it's the concept of people thinking on the topic of our exponentially growing technologies. What impact will the move towards artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. have on the world in which we live? You're about to meet Raymond McCauley, engineer, entrepreneur, scientist who works at the cutting edge of biotechnology. How do we apply technology to agriculture, medicine, biology, genetics, and what effect will that have on the world around us? In essence, Raymond, what is digital biology? Raymond McCauley, thanks for joining us on The Big Questions. First of all, explain to the good people listening out in the firmament, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm just this guy, so I'm an engineer and a scientist and an entrepreneur, and those are really kind of like the stages of my life, like you'd look at an insect and say pupa, larva, butterfly. I did a whole lot of school and ended up at the center of a lot of different technological development where I was really lucky. The actual bona fides that I've got are that I was uh, working with a company called Illumina. Mm-hmm. And we developed something called next generation sequencing for reading DNA. And okay, it, so let's go. We, we, we've yeah. got DNA inside our cells, mm-hmm. and the markers are a series of the letters, the A, T, Cs, and Gs, that mm-hmm. tell us about the structure of our DNA and our genome. Absolutely. S- sequencing is getting all those down in order. Right, being able to read out the A, Cs, Gs, and Ts, know for an individual what they've got where. And also to know for a population, know for a species what's going on. What was next generation about what you guys were doing? Well, we had a way of doing it that dated back like 20 years. It was brilliant. It was what they had used to do the Human Genome Project. Mm -hmm. But it was a little slow, a lot costly. And so we kind of figured out this new radical way to do it. And it was something that made it a lot cheaper and faster. When we talk about, and this is... Amazing when we talk about cheaper and faster. Um, you showed a great graph at the Australia Summit of the, the falling price over time. The original genome, you said you could sequence for about the cost of, was it a stealth bomber was the comparisons you were doing? Stealth bomber's cheap compared to what that thing cost. So uh, it was $3 billion all in to do the, the Human Genome Project, multinational project. Stealth bomber's just $2 billion. So it's like, you know... Human Genome Project with a coupon. I thought. Uh, I think you said you could buy a stealth bomber and invite everyone in the world to come and watch a Star Wars movie with you. <laughs> that got a good laugh from the crowd. Then you listed the names of two or three other movies you could have also taken everyone in the world to, having already bought a stealth bomber. Yeah, that's was, what the first DNA sequencing cost. Stealth bomber plus uh, opening weekend receipts for the three of the biggest movies. It was Star Wars, Jurassic World, and The Avengers. And and that that's kind of my big point is it wasn't cheap to do it the first time. It was Defense Department budget plus Hollywood budget. And for a while, the costs dropped there, in a sort of parallel with what we know as Moore's law, doubling over time, which is significant. But you become part of the show when it 
sort of falls off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think as, as a society, as technologists, we're so spoiled by Moore's Law, we expect our computers to get better, cheaper, faster, mm-hmm. and we expect that to affect everything. And so, yeah, we had this expectation, it's getting cheaper at that rate, but next generation sequencing, we sort of did Moore's Law to the power of Moore's Law. We compounded it, and it started getting cheaper at a rate of about 5x a year. Where are we at now with the costs of that process? Roughly, we've just passed, so down from $3 billion to do the whole thing the first time, million-dollar genome. In 2015, we were at about $1,000 genome. Uh, in January, we probably hit a $100 US dollar genome. And now, there's a little fudging, so let me kind of put the little asterisk mm-hmm. and the footnote on that. So that is the marginal cost to go ahead and sequence another genome. Meaning if you sequenced a million of them, the million in first one is going to cost that much. So it's not necessarily what you would use around your house. It's not Mm -hmm. what you're going to use at the hospital. But when we're sequencing big populations of people, like we are, and putting it in medical records, yeah, it's going to affect every one of us. We're we're getting it down that cheap. You you refer to your time there as one of the sort of kicks in the head that you had that set you on the journey you're on now. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one was you encountered an open PCR machine. Now, mm-hmm. walk us through like dummies. What's an open PCR machine and what effect did that have on you? It's a nice juxtaposition. So I'm working for corporate America. I'm doing research and development. We do fantastic things. I'm really proud of it. I'm pouring my myself into it sleeping under the desk at night. And then we have this great DNA sequencing machine that costs half a million dollars to buy the machine, three quarters of a million dollars. If you trick it out, it's a full million dollars. And if you I, really pimp it up. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was good and cheap for sort of bespoke research equipment, mm-hmm. right? But knowing that, hey, this was such a big deal, and thinking, how does the rest of the world comprehend it? How do people get their hands on it? Like, would you ever be able to take this to a high school and use it in a vocational program? It's like, no, not at half a million dollars. Seeing some of the people who were working on garage inventions and wanting to do different things, and that's when I ran across OpenPCR. So you've got to understand PCR, stands for Polymerase Chain Reaction, It's a fancy way of saying it's a DNA copy machine. And anything you want to do in medicine or any of this this Mm -hmm. other stuff we do, you start with a little bit of DNA, a sample from a cell, whether it's, you know, like forensic files and you found something you need to look at it, or you're wanting to do some genetic engineering or you want to read somebody's DNA, you have a little bit and then you need to copy it or amplify it, make a lot of it so you can deal with it. And there's a, a way to do that that involves some machinery and some actual protein machinery. There's a little Mm -hmm. piece of protein that we hijacked from a bacteria around a thermal vent. A PCR machine, one of these DNA copy machines, ordinarily was costing in the tens of thousands. Maybe you could get one used for a few thousand dollars, Mm -hmm. but it was a, a, a big deal piece of equipment. A couple of guys who were software engineers said, man, we think we could do that better. And, you know, why did they trick it out with this kind of power supply? We could use one out of a a personal computer. And why did they, you know, they have this thing. Why don't we go ahead and just machine a little aluminum block? And, oh, these guys are using this thing. Why don't we use an Arduino? You know, we'll go ahead and do our own chip and put it in there. And what I really love about it, everybody who makes uh, medical equipment, they actually spend a lot of money on making that plastic case that's so pretty and making (laughs) it look streamlined. These guys are like, 
let's cut that sucker out of plywood and we'll use a computer thing to cut it and just put it together. And so it has this homemade DIY air. They did the whole thing for about 600 bucks and you could buy it online down from multiple tens of thousands of dollars. And then they said, well, maybe somebody doesn't want to pay $600. We'll sell them the parts and they can put it together themselves <laughs> for a little bit less. And then, because they have this whole sort of new ethos about how to do it, this is Open PCR is the name of the product and the company. I said, let's do an open hardware standard. Let's publish all of our plans. Here's all the ways to cut things out. Here's the parts list. Here's how we made the aluminum block. Here's everything you need. We're just going to put that out there. If somebody can do a better job than us, great. Let us know. Share it with us, but do your own. So people improve the hardware standard. There's an open PCR 2.0, 3.0. They've gone on from there. They've got a, an even nicer open PCR machine now that is really fancy for about $1,000. There's one that's on the low end for $99 from another company based mm. on their design. And it just it kind of went viral. Everybody could use this. This word open is used often for people to have heard open source or open data and it runs contrary to the old concept of this is my material i'm going to make a bucket load i'm going to protect it and not let anyone know while i become a billionaire instead open source put the code out there put the devices out there let people use them open data throw the data out there in the marketplace let people use it and you know, hopefully we'll all benefit from that process it's a sort of it's a medical device version of that from what you're saying yeah and and so many of the people who are doing this have come from the software world where they're like tired of patents they like sharing code they know that the stuff that you do improves in a network society whenever you share things out different people get to look at it and you know without kind of getting on my high horse about it that's really interesting um one of sort of i think one of our our driving Insights or laws in civilization is Joy's law. Bill Joy was running one of these big tech companies and he said basically let's take all of our stuff and open it up and let other people work on it. Let's open up Unix, let's open up operating systems because of Joy's law, which is most of the smart people in the world don't work for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a handy principle. Not bad. Seems pretty accurate. Yeah. And this is this leads to the a fascinating phase of your life where you, you become a biohacker. Now, people would have heard of the word hacking and understand the idea of hacking into someone's computer systems or hacking software. What does it mean to be a biohacker for a start? Yeah, there's a little misunderstanding around there. You know, whenever I hear hacker, and I used to be a computer hacker, and I actually, when I was a kid, I was that kid who would break into computers and see what was going on. But you know, it wasn't poorly intentioned. I wasn't stealing people's mm. stuff. I was exploring. It was sort of like being a spelunker, but through computer systems. Mm. And so a, a hacker to me is somebody who uses all the tools that they've got to try to do something new. Yeah. Some, some people might work in workplaces where they'll have a hack day where mm -hmm. people from different parts of the workplace come together, try and solve problems, do something innovative and new, and then go back to their various parts for the, the other 29 days of the month. Absolutely. We talk about it too in, in medical hardware or just any kind of hardware with rapid prototyping. And so there's, there's this place where all of those things kind of start to stick together. For biohacking, it kind of, for us, and there's a few other ways to look at it, but it started around, hey, can we do cheap lab equipment instead of having to buy a million dollar thing? Can we make a $1,000 or a $100 thing? 
And that was one. And then it was like, well, if we can do that with the lab equipment, can we do that with actually even the DNA itself, with the cells, with some of the more wetware versus the hardware or the software? And all of that came together. It was a little bit of a contingent of sort of what, what I think of as the cyberpunk leather jacket wearing swaggering <laughs> biopunks who are like, you know, here's my manifesto and, and stuff. And it's a big umbrella. We still have some folks like that who do things. There are activists and inventors and students and, and all stripes of people. Died in the wool capitalist and people who are, you know, information and biology wants to be free. Yeah, and once you've taken up the idea of making uh, the DNA available or the equipment available, well, then you have to put it all together in a lab that's openly available. I'm talking about BioCurious. I love the name BioCurious. Set up in 2009. Tell us about that incredible space. Well, it's something I'm, I'm still... Uh, one of my proudest moments was working with the five co-founders, the other five co-founders to do that. But it's kind of funny. We didn't get there immediately. We actually had, for a while, there were a bunch of us who were garage inventors, and we had these things in our garages where we were trying to sort of limp along and do without the super expensive equipment and use our, you know, old shoddy equipment off of eBay or something that we had cobbled together. And we all started finding each other and working with each other. It's like, you've got a PCR machine, I've got a cell sorter, somebody else has got an incubator. Could we move around <laughs> to different garages and do the things we need to do to try to develop our in inventions or for fun, a lot of pro-am mm. stuff? While we were doing that, we actually said, let's have a, a meeting. And about every other weekend, we would be in somebody's garage or somebody's little home lab or would sneak into somebody's corporate lab after hours. <laughs> so there was a little illicit bit going on here. And at one of these things, we looked around and half of the people that we didn't know were reporters and the other half were investors. And we started to get a little nervous. It's like, so this is starting to get some attention do we want everybody to know what we're doing? We actually shut the meetings down and made them closed because we weren't sure is it illegal to mm -hmm. splice genes in your garage. Um, one of the main people who had started this uh, was Ari Gentry. She was one of our co-founders. She was living in a duplex in Mountain View, so the, the city that Google is doing things mm -hmm. in where, you know, where Apple Computer was founded. And she's got lab equipment being moved off of trucks into her garage. They're working on a cancer cure startup, kind of moonlighting. Her neighbors think that she's running some kind of drug laboratory. Mm -hmm. You know? And so we started to get these perceptions. So we shut it down. When people would come to the meetings, we would actually, instead of saying oh yeah, here's the address, we would say come to the corner of Main and Elm and then would draw the curtain and peep out and be like okay, there's no, they don't look like they're agents or anything. Okay, tell them where to come. You know, people would call. <laughs> and call the phone booth on the corner. But we were, we were so nervous because there started to be these calls like, hey, is this regulated? Could they do anything they wanted? Hmm. And we looked at it and we said, you know, by doing this, we're probably protecting ourselves, but going underground is not the way mm -hmm. to do it. It's, it's not with that open source ethos. Mm -hmm. And we said, could we put this in the middle of the most transparent glass house? Could we put it on a corner in a commercial district and have, you know, big open windows where people could look and put their nose up against the glass and see what's going on and invite them in then when they're like, wow, what is that? And say, well, let me show you and let's take you through and you can splice a gene. So we, we decided to go ahead and start a community lab, called it a biohacker space. 
Uh, Joseph Jackson, another one of the co-founders, came up with the the somewhat interesting name BioCurious. Love it. It was a lot of fun, and it worked for San Francisco especially. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, and our, our initial slogan was BioCurious Experiment with Friends. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. And we did the first Kickstarter project. One of the first ones, actually, when it had first come out. And to give you an idea how early this was, we at the time raised the most money anybody had ever raised on a Kickstarter project. Mm. And it was $32,000. <laughs> and we thought, wow, yeah. we're on to something. And then, you know, next the, year. The Kickstarter money also seems to go up with Moore's Law. A little bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like you can, if you don't raise $3 million for your sunglasses, you're not yeah. doing it right. So at, at this place, so people come along. Do they have to pay to go along to start? Who comes? What do they do when they're there? It's one of those things you kind of have to be there to see it and really experience it. But my thumbnail description is it's a, it's a gym membership for science. So somebody pays 100 bucks a month. They get access to a full working bio medical laboratory. I.e. like the gym tool equipment they could never afford to put in their own home. We estimate, whenever we've, we've done the estimates, at least $3 million worth of equipment wow. if we were creating it from scratch. And it's stuff that people donated to us because we're a non-profit, hmm. a not-for-profit, I should say. It's stuff that uh, people took and pulled out of their garage that they had had, things people bought on eBay and fixed that were broken, and a lot of things. And now whenever I actually just got a text before I came in here, uh, lab is closing down. They're like, rather than sell all of our stuff out on a, a penny on the dollar, would you like to come and load up a truck? And I was like, we will be there. Wow. So and people really believe in this. People who do this, you know, tech is great because people like it and they were going to change the world. But the first question you get in a, an interview with a tech company is, what are my stock options? Hmm. The first question you get in an interview with a biotech company is, are we saving lives today or what hmm. are we doing? How, how are we changing the world? And it's, it's that kind of passion. Who are the sort of people who come and what are the sort of things they do at BioCurious? We built it at first for inventors. We thought that this would be a place for startup people because it's Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It's like if it was LA, everybody would be a waiter with a script that Bedroom, they're working on. Yeah. yeah, but in Silicon Valley, everybody's working on a startup or an invention. Um, but we were actually kind of surprised almost immediately about half of the people who were coming were students and parents of students, uh, young people, who were like, hey, this is kind of the next big thing. I feel like this is the beginning of the computer revolution, except it's the biotech revolution. What do I do? And so we started doing a lot of classes around that. People who were looking at switching jobs from high-tech to biotech, mm-hmm. and that became interesting. Again, a little surprising to me, artists and activists especially. And I can't tell you how many people we've had walk in and say, yeah, this whole thing with splicing genes and food, it's another tool of business to oppress mm-hmm. the people. And then they work on something for three months and they come out and they're like, wow, we can give this to the people and this is fantastic. Mm. And it's uh, interesting. And every once in a while somebody will come in and be like, I'm such a big fan of this. We're going to be able to use this for wonderful things. And they walk out and they're like, this is horribly dangerous. We need to regulate it right away. <laughs> so I kind of feel like we're in a good space if mm. we're changing minds both ways. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting, eclectic group of people. Is it the sort of place... People would go there to learn and, and do projects, but you'd have to be able after a while to look and see how you're getting 
results and a, 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 a individual scientific breakthroughs coming out of a place like this or is success if someone then learns to do something that they end up spinning a company or a device out of it or how do you measure? A little bit of all of that. We, so we, um, we actually have some measurements about companies and you know what they get for funding and follow-on funding and how they do. But we also measure, one of our metrics is the number of people that are coming through on certain classes. Um, to some extent, we track, at least casually, people who are going and entering different fields, uh, you know, what it's done for our community. But yeah, there's, there's something that is kind of starting to be a thing around DIY science, open science, network science. Mm-hmm. And the idea, you know, maybe you have a cheap tool that you developed or not, or maybe you're just propagating out an idea for how to do it. But instead of having, I don't know, a a government grant to go and measure how many salmon are in some stream, what if we go ahead and we say, here's the way we're going to measure it. Here's maybe a cheap gadget to do it. And we're going to send this out to 100 people all over this area. And you all do it yourselves and report back, sort of Mm -hmm. crowdsource science. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. It's not just a way to promote looking at science. It's a way to really gather data cheaply and, and do it. So we've had some of our first papers published from participatory research. Mm. People are experimenting on themselves. And in this area of start, you know, this community where everyone's got their own startup and all that, have you had startups spun out from people who've worked within the lab and, and work that's come from? Absolutely. It's been stunning to see. And the way that's evolved has been a little differently than I thought. Uh, Really good startups don't come and just stay in BioCurious for three years. They come, they spend three weeks trying to validate a prototype. Most of them fail. But the nice thing is those guys didn't go quit their jobs, raise $2 million, validate a prototype that failed. They moonlighted and did it. The ones that are successful get out of there in three weeks or three months anyway because hey it's successful then they go raise the money and they own so much more of their company we've got a set of figures i don't remember what the latest update is but at least in late 2017 we had had 60 plus companies come through with uh, over 179 million dollars in follow-on funding whoa and that is through an organization that has not a single full-time person Everybody's a volunteer. So it, it beats beats with a stick what some other big government programs do. And you're the first of this type of lab in the world, but you're not the only one now a decade on, are you? No. There are a few people who kind of challenge us for presidents. Right. We had a, uh, some folks out in Brooklyn who started something called Gen Space. They thought they were the first for a while. They did the TED circuit, and we're like, no, 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 really, we, we started it in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's great. In, in, in my hometown of Sydney, which was the first place for European settlement of mm-hmm. Australia, I've had the indigenous population here for anything up to 60,000 years, but in the <laughs> late 1700s, the English arrive, and not long after that, there's pubs and there's venues and there's multiple different locations that all claim to be the oldest pub in Sydney because it's purely a matter of how you define it. So 
if this was the oldest pub and then it's moved venue four different times but it's still got the same name or is it the oldest continuous location where alcohol has been served or was it the first place a pub that was ever set up that is now a pub again having had a period off so there's several people that can put their hand up and say we're the oldest we've been around the longest my very favorite one i got to visit some folks at the hague in in Mm -hmm. holland and they were saying hey we we think that we're the oldest group in europe and then they showed me the operating theater where one of the Dutch masters, I don't remember if it was Rembrandt, but there's this famous picture of all these guys in the brown hats around kind of doing a dissection. They're like, yeah, those guys were the original biohackers back in 1706. I was like, okay, you got us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty fallow period for about 280 years yeah. after that. Slow start, but... But yeah. there are places everywhere now, or has it really taken off this concept? Yeah, the following five years, we saw at least 200 different spaces blossom. Yeah, and just everywhere. And we thought, you know, oh, well, this will be an American thing. It will be a U.S. thing because of the whole sort of go-getter, experiment, inventor piece. But almost immediately, we had spots in Europe, South America. For a while, we thought, oh, for some reason, this isn't catching on in Asia. And it was just a language barrier. We had several Japanese biohacker labs. We had a lot of Chinese places where they were kind of under the radar because they weren't sure what their regulations were and also a language barrier. Mm. But they people would come and visit BioCurious and stay. Some people would move there for like three months, work as volunteers, fantastic workers, and teach classes, take classes, do all the different bits, take notes about what would work and not work, and then go back and start their own. Mm. And it's just... Tremendous. For a while, we said that we had it on six of the seven continents, and then we actually got a biohacker base at McMurdo in <laughs> Antarctica. So we got them all. We're now aiming for the moon and Mars as soon as we get some people up there. I'm talking with Roman McCall. He's, amongst many things, a biohacker, um, one of the founders of the BioCurious Lab in the US. When you spoke uh, at the Singularity U Australia Summit, you told a little story early on about the amazing Rosalind Franklin, and it went, mm. it went to a message about uh, intellectual engagement and ownership and, and discovery. Just quickly for people listening who might not know of her amazing work, and it's unfortunate more people don't. Tell us about Rosalind and the point you were making there. It's interesting given today, so here we are in, in February of 2018, and we're actually creeping up on this nice anniversary, the 65th anniversary of the discovery of the structure of DNA. And that's, that's a seminal point. Mm. And everybody in school, you'll learn about you know Watson and Crick, Jim Watson and Francis Crick, being the guys who discovered this, and there's pictures of them with a the little model. And, and they did tremendous, amazing work. But what you don't always hear about is they did that work on the back of the work that Rosalind Franklin did. And she had to take DNA from... Uh, tobacco mosaic virus and purify it and crystallize it and shoot x-rays through it and come up with these x-ray diffraction patterns and go through all this math and she was really the first person she was the person who was like sitting alone in the lab in the middle of the night and said these are spirals and she was doing all this those guys had a deal with her boss that they got to tour her lab and get some copies of her x-ray diffraction stuff they went back and worked on it and basically scooped her on the discovery and it's a little bit of a thing in science that it's a little bit of a controversy that that happened. Um, and some of it just points out the competitiveness that mm. goes on. Some of it points out, I think, about how women have been treated poorly, systematically. 
in, in the sciences. Some of it people will say, well, 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 she, she would have gotten the Nobel Prize, but at the time they awarded it, she had died of cancer. Mm. And so they don't do posthumous. And, but uh, other people have said, well, that might have been the time to make the exception. But I just like to, I always like whenever we talk about DNA, it's, you know, people who did that kind of hard work and don't always get recognized, that story behind the story. Hmm. One of the, the fun things, um, to give you an idea how we try to bake that into what we do, our Wi-Fi password at BioCurious, if anybody visits, is Rosalind. And so you can't go and get on a computer without thinking about Rosalind. And that's what we want to do. <laughs> as, as someone who uh, regularly looks inside our little DNA bits and asks all sorts of questions, um, a fairly basic one for you, Raymond. Some people argue that, you know, kids my daughter's age, 12 and 10, you've got twin boys who are 11, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the first generation of people who live forever. Some say first generation of people who live to uh, 150. Uh, are we, are these ambitious long shots, those sort of statements, or is there a, a strong string of truth that runs through them? Well, like a true scientist, I can come down on both sides nice. of that. It's kind of funny in my circles where we do a lot of work with exponential technology, I'm considered conservative. In most of the scientific world, I'm considered, you know, really far out on this. So I like being in the middle of those two groups. Um, for you're, sure. you're a conservative radical. Exactly, exactly. I, I'm an oxymoron just <laughs> from the beginning. It looks like, you know, we've been living longer and longer and longer. And a lot of people say, oh, that's the march of science. We're curing all these diseases. Really, for the first part of the 20th century, that was the march of public health, mm-hmm. right? So having sewers and sanitation. And, and the, a lot of that growth you see in life expectancy isn't everyone living longer and longer, but it's people not dying unnecessarily in their 20s and 30s, dragging the average down. Exactly, like exactly. And, and, and kind of whenever you look at it and break it down, statistically, it's fewer people dying in childbirth and dying from, you know, different infant mm. mortality causes. So the, that part right up at the beginning. Then we had some great breakthroughs with vaccines and antibiotics, which have done a lot. So you're four times less likely to die of a communicable disease than you were 100 years ago, mm. for instance. And that looks like that just keeps on shrinking. But that means we live long enough to get other things, right? Now, if you kind of go out and look, the longest lived person we know, I believe it's 122 years and four months. And statistically, it looks like most people just can't live past 120, even if, every, if they've got the best possible genetics, hmm. best possible environment, everything breaks right. So 120 looks like a pretty good you know, uh, limit naturally, given the natural progression of medicine as we know it. Hmm. But... If you go ahead and start looking at DNA as a programmable medium and a fungible medium, being able to do something with that, if we can repair our DNA in our body, there's no reason why we can't get past that point. So, so the conservative, not so conservative thing is more and more people are going to live. Our, our kids will have a really good shot at living past 100, 120. And given what we think is going to happen in the next 20 years, we may have the same shot at that, and they and we may live long enough to break that 120 barrier and just kind of keep on going. The question then, of course, when you say, if we can repair our DNA, becomes how complex an issue is it to repair 
our DNA in a way that keeps us ongoing and ongoing, and there's quite possibly a, a few twists in that tale. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost unbelievably complex, irreducibly complex. If you look at a human body, an adult human body with 10 trillion cells, each with its own copy of DNA, each of which can go wrong. And if that happens badly enough in one cell, that's the start of a cancer that's life-threatening. That sounds so complex. That's ridiculously complex. That's as complex as saying, here's somebody can write a book by hand, and then here's somebody who can copy every single bit of human knowledge in three seconds. But we do that now. Hmm. We actually have machines that are that complex with electronics, etc. So being able to do that in the physical world with something as small as DNA in a living body, kind of like working on a car as it zooms down the freeway, you can't pull off at an exit. I don't know. I think that we probably get there. How evenly is that distributed? Hmm. What people do we save first and last? What remains a chronic disease? We'll have to see. But it, it seems like we are living on the verge of a real qualitative change in human existence. And if we do initially get that technology, it might initially cost as much as a stealth bomber and <laughs> taking everyone on Earth to a couple of movies. But over time, we would expect also those costs to drop. Exactly. And I think that that's such a great analogy. I'm glad you brought that up. So if in 20 years we can go from the cost of a stealth bomber to the cost of a delivery pizza for sequencing DNA, I think maybe with DNA repair, if we're going to do it and do it right, if you've got to do it in 10 trillion cells already, is it that hard to do it in 20 trillion cells? You know, is it that hard to do it for more people? You're having to have a technology that reproduces itself, which is a, a nanotechnology. And that will be you know, one of those singulitarian breakthroughs. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've loved every second of it, but you did just mention pizza. So I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> Love to chat with you, Raymond. Thank you, and I'll have some pepperoni. And it was just a pure pleasure. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.